This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers and be jumping. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. G'day, David Corton with you this week and on Countrywide, will Europe succeed in making Australian farmers stop using names like Feta, Prosecco and Pecorino and the huge drive to turn the mining fleet of utes from diesel to electric? Most of all the architectures of electric vehicles are focused on a vehicle taking off at a rapid speed. What we were looking for was exactly the opposite. We're looking for a high torque or high carrying capacity of the vehicle so that it can maintain speed on steep uh, declines and climbs and carry heavy loads, trailers, uh, men, etc., etc. The conversion from diesel to electric really taking shape and speeding up in the mining industry. We'll also look at the shocking gap in rural versus metropolitan health outcomes with a new report showing women in remote areas are now more likely to die 19 years before their city counterparts. This is Countrywide. First, let's take a look at the fruit juice and the contentious issue of health star ratings. The CSIRO is working on bringing down the natural sugar content of fruit juice drinks by up to 70%. It's a big relief to citrus growers who were shocked by a review of Australia's health star rating system that gave fruit juice a worse rating than diet cola. Now the citrus industry wants the whole health star system scuttled, as Tina Quinn reports. Sugar is a major health problem here in Australia, seen as a leading contributor to a number of diseases, including obesity and diabetes. And what we see in Australia is that half of Australians are consuming more free sugar than the recommended daily amount. But actually, people want to consume less. It's just not that easy. Gemma Howes from the CSIRO is currently working on a project to reduce the natural sugar content of fruit juices. So if I take an example, like a single bottle of juice that's quite commonly available, um, it may not have any added sugar, but it can still have up to 10 teaspoons of naturally occurring sugar. And I think that's where people are often very surprised when they hear this. So I think that's why when we saw the opportunity and this research, I guess it's just incredible that we found a way that we can actually significantly reduce the sugar content of juice through a natural process. So that means there's no additives, there's no sweeteners involved, and you're able to get the nutritional benefit of juice without as much sugar. Two years ago, food regulators had reduced the five-star rating of fruit juice to just two stars, meaning it ranked as less healthy than diet cola. It came as a huge blow to fruit juice producers, who contribute almost three-quarters of a billion dollars to Australia's economy. Obviously, the industry is extremely disappointed with the health star rating and we don't hold any faith in the health star rating at all, to be honest. The focusing on one element of a product's nutritional value is not useful for anyone. And this is meant to be a communication tool to the community. It's been hijacked by anti-sugar people. And I think it's um, a real disappointment for our industry and many other industries who face skewed responses to the health stars that are applied to them. Um, and I think it's, you know, bureaucracy gone mad, to be honest. Citrus Australia Chief Executive Nathan Hancock argues that the nutritional benefits of fruit juice 
far outweighs the concerns around its high sugar content. The fact still remains that a freshly squeezed orange or mandarin or uh, any other citrus type that um, people are consuming contains a bevy of nutritional value that is being disregarded and we'll be soon be releasing through Horn Innovation funded research some information on the fantastic nutritional benefits that uh, come from citrus that far outweigh any concerns that people should have about sugar. Many dietitians would agree with you and in fact did when this new health star rating came down on, on, on fruit juices two years ago. Uh, but many others, including Syro, say that the overconsumption of sugar is a leading contributor to the burden of chronic disease globally. Can you understand Syro's point here? Can you understand why they have concerns about the level of sugar in, in fruit juices? All right. Absolutely, I can see their point, but I think that that the focus is on a natural product such as juice when when we all know that sugar is hidden in so many products and and there are so many benefits and the long long term studies that have shown um, increases in mental health, positive outcomes for people who are pregnant, the absolutely zero connection to obesity and all of these other things that are, are we're lumped into when people talk about sugar. Natural 100% orange juice, and I'm not talking about fruit drinks or um, reconstituted um, juices. I'm talking about 100% natural orange juice that you buy in a fresh shelf at your retailer, uh, made in Australia with 100% Australian oranges, is a unique product. When consumed in a in in moderation, just like consuming anything else in moderation, has a lot of health benefits for you. And I think the focus that the health star rating brings to these products is is misguided. And I think it, um, it's well and truly time that that actual system is actually reviewed and scuttled. CSIRO's newly developed technology converts the naturally occurring sugar in fruit juice into complex carbohydrates like fibre, therefore reducing the sugar content by up to 70%. But Gemma House assures us that the nutritional benefits provided by natural sugar won't be lost. So I think in terms of the kind of nutritional profile of vitamins, things like fibre, that's what we've been able to manage to maintain. And I think it's really the opportunity here is how do we reduce that excess sugar consumption in people's diets? And this is one way that hopefully can help. So could this actually restore the five-star health rating for fruit juices? So that is definitely an ambition that we have. So we've got to work through that as part of um, product optimization and the research. But yes, given that the health star rating looks at um, sugar levels within the calculation, there should be an improvement. How far off are we from seeing this research implemented on, on supermarket shelves? So the research is definitely in progress. So we've made great progress so far, but it's still there's still optimization work that we're working on. Um, but we've just, I think the project team has made it onto On Accelerate, which is the CSIRO's accelerator program. So I think the accelerator program will help us as we start to explore how do we bring that to market as well. While it will still be some time before low sugar juice hits supermarket shelves, the On Accelerate program will give the project a clear path to commercialization. Tina Quinn with that report, and this is Countrywide. An explosion of sea urchins is having a terrible impact on the environment on the ocean floor. The spiky sea creatures can mow down entire swathes of kelp forest, leaving behind rocky, barren reefs. And fishing for some predator species has allowed the urchin populations to explode 
explode. It turns out the problem in southeast Australian waters is also occurring in waters off New Zealand. Scientists and the Senate have been focusing on the issue this week in Tasmania and heard that $50 million is needed to reduce urchin numbers on the Great Southern Reef. Dr Nick Shears from Auckland University has told Madeleine Rohan he made the journey to Launceston for the workshop to find out how they can manage sea urchin numbers in New Zealand waters. We're seeing similar outbreaks and increases in centrostephanus on reefs in northern parts of New Zealand. Yeah, well, we're obviously downstream from you know, New South Wales and eastern Australia, so we have some connection in terms of larval flow from um, eastern Australia through to New Zealand. So the centrostephanus in New Zealand have really increased over the last 10 to 15 years as the water temperatures have warmed. So we've seen record temperatures in the last few years, and associated with that we're seeing an increase in the numbers of centrostephanus. Is, how does that compare to what you've learnt about how it is in, in Australia and Tasmania? It, it's really similar to what's been seen in Tasmania, other than the fact that in New Zealand it is a native species. It's, it's always been there, but in low numbers. So, but with the warming temperatures, there's obviously been an increase in recruitment, and um, that's been exacerbated by the fishing um, for rock lobster. So rock lobster are the main predators of Centrostephanus in probably in Tasmania but also in New Zealand and we have huge fisheries for rock lobster in New Zealand so effectively by the, the very low abundance of rock lobster effectively opens the door for these Centrostephanus to increase. That, that's actually happening in one of our marine reserves as well. So within this marine reserve we have high numbers of snapper um, but they don't seem to control uh, the numbers of this particular sea urchin um, so again, the main predator for this species um, are the rock lobster. So we have both the eastern rock lobster and southern rock lobster were historically very abundant in these er- these areas, but they, they haven't recovered within the marine protected area. So effectively, without any predators, the warming temperatures just allow the population to increase. Do you think there should be any moves to cap fishing or have... Have you seen any any thought given to that at all? It's it's an issue that we're we're figuring out figuring out how to deal with at the moment. So how can you manage fisheries in a way that allows those key predator species to still play a role in the ecosystem and keep species like Centrostephanus under control? So whether that can be done through adjusting fisheries quotas or rules, or whether it's through having spatial closures where you actually allow predators to recover in some areas that might be of high value. If you can protect those predators then you can hopefully prevent those reefs getting taken over by Centrostephanus and losing your kelp forests. Scientist Dr Nick Shears from Auckland University talking to Madeline Rohan about the sea urchin problem in the waters off New Zealand. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. To the sheep industry now, and research on sheep that go through stressful situations shows they're not that different from people. They form relationships with others when they go through difficult experiences together. Researchers put GPS tags on the sheep and track their movement to see how they respond to different situations. Dr Dana Campbell from the CSIRO in Armidale in New South Wales told me their reaction is similar to how people build relationships out of stress. 
So there can be some temporary stressors, such as when they're being herded by dogs or you're putting them out in the yards or if you have to do sort of standard management husbandry, such as uh, shearing them. So they do go through these temporary stressful events. And so these were things that we applied to them. So it wasn't anything unusual. We were just um, implementing what they might normally be experiencing. So we found that those sheep that had experience this stress together, uh, they were more likely to spend time together compared to groups of sheep that hadn't shared this experience. And we did also have sheep in the group that were familiar to each other, so ones that they already knew, and, and they preferred those ones the most. So they spent more time closer to the sheep that um, I guess we could call their friends or that they were familiar with. But then they did develop these, these bonds and spent time with those animals that they had shared that stressful experience with. And when you say spent time, what sort of behaviours did you notice? Uh, so we were just looking at proximity or time spent together. So with these uh, GPS devices, we can track where every sheep is in the paddock and we can calculate the distance between every different individual sheep. And by looking at that, we can um, work out which ones are spending more time close to each other. And do sheep snuggle up in effect? Do they do the kinds of things that people do? Uh, not so much snuggling up, but we also, we were only looking at it during the daytime. So they might be more likely to huddle closer together at night. But we were looking just across the day when the sheep would be able to see each other. So they can recognize faces. So we really wanted to test this across the daytime when we knew that they could see and recognize each other. So knowing that sheep have friends, if you like, and knowing that they form special bonds with other sheep that go through stressful situations, is there something in that, that that's useful for farmers, do you think? I, I think eventually it, it will be. It, it might be difficult when you've got groups of hundreds or thousands of sheep, um, but we're hoping that eventually if you have um, small tracking devices on sheep, then you can work out those ones that do have close relationships and you can account for that to make sure that you, you're not say, splitting up groups of sheep that are um, close to each other. That's Dr. Dana Campbell from the CSIRO. And uh, some big news at the end of the week was about China Trade. The Australian Meat Industry Council says there are some exceptionally positive signs that trade suspensions on all eight meat export businesses will be lifted soon. Eight exporters from Queensland, Victoria and New South Wales were suspended from trade with China between May 2020 and September 2021. AMEX says it'll take some time, but dialogue between Australia and China is improving and the industry is keen to return to normal as soon as possible. Meanwhile, the head of Australia's largest meat cooperative estimates that losing the China market has cost it millions of dollars. Prior to its suspension over labelling uh, non-compliance nearly three years ago, the Casino Food Co-op in northern New South Wales was sending a third of its product, that's an estimated 10 shipping containers a week, to China. You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio.
The Australian dairy industry is on edge this week as EU negotiators sit down with the Department of Foreign Affairs to talk about naming rights. The EU wants to restrict the rights to over 50 types of cheese names, including Australian favourites like feta, parmesan and pecorino. Rick Gladigo, the president of lobby group Australian Dairy Farmers, told Tina Quinn the fallout from these negotiations could be huge. The geographical indicator is something that the EU sort of has been trying to push in all the trade agreements they've been doing with other countries. To me, it's basically creating a trade barrier, not creating free trade, as, you know, it's supposed to be free trade agreements. You know, I mean, geographical indicators are about, say, a provenance or a town or something where they, they feel this brand or name is originated from and they're trying to then create this geographical indicator to say, no, this is where it comes from and, and nobody else should be allowed to to use it. It's almost like a copyright on it. But we're, we're fighting back saying, no, look, these are well-known, widespread, used around the world names already. So to then say, oh, you can't use that name is just, well, to me, it's nearly irrational. So it's, you know, it's names like Feta and Parmesan and Halloumi and Gruyere, etc., which, you know, especially names like Parmesan and Feta are, are big here. And we've got people from, you know, as a multicultural country, We've got uh, migrants here who've brought this heritage and culture with them to the country and these cheese-making skills and to make these styles of cheeses uh, and then to be told by their, their home country, basically, oh, sorry, you can't call it feta anymore. You'll have to call it something else. don't know what you call it, but you can't call it feta. And what was DFAT's response to your concerns and the, and the sector's concerns when you raised it with them this week? They've been very supportive of us. Uh, and they certainly see what we're highlighting here and, and the issue with it. So they've been very supportive of, of what we're uh, what we're trying to achieve here and say, to say no. And that's pretty much what we expect them to take to the table. So Dairy Australia has known that this was coming for a number of years now. What have you actually done in terms of a solution-based response or a way forward for the sector if the EU does indeed get its way? I mean, we've known at ADF and an ADIC level as well as Dairy Australia, we've basically kept highlighting the reasons why this shouldn't come into play as part of a free trade agreement. And we've basically stuck to that cause to say, no, now, this will cost us up to $95 million a year. We're talking a 1,000 jobs. We're talking probably small businesses that could shut down. We're talking dairy farmers that, you know, myself, I supply small cheese makers that make these types of cheeses. Okay, well, you know, the reason I've gone to them is they're, they're a local business. They're paying me a good price to uh, produce my milk to look after me and doing these, these styles. So the ramifications are huge in it. And so we've basically said this is what the fallout will be. This is why we say no to it. And, and we've seen already in other trade negotiations where they haven't stuck to the same line. They're not, just not consistent across the board. Rick Gladigo from the Australian Dairy Farmers. His, uh, he was speaking there with Tina Quinn and negotiations to continue in the coming week. This is Countrywide. And to health issues now, a report published by the Royal Flying Doctor Service has seen a 25% increase in them attending Priority 1 or life-threatening retrievals across regional Australia since the outbreak of COVID-19. In its Best for the Bush report just published, the RFDS found a huge gap between city and country life expectancy, with women in remote areas now more likely to die 19 years, yep, 19 years before their city counterparts. Federation Executive Director Frank Quinlan says the government needs to act now as part of its Medicare reform. Look, I think the thing that most stands out for us is really 
the fairly simple proposition that the further you live from a metropolitan centre, the poorer your health is likely to be, the shorter your life expectancy, the higher your mortality rate. And that really culminates in the most remotest parts of Australia where uh, females are likely to die 19 years earlier than their city counterparts and males are nearly 14 years earlier than their uh, city counterparts. And what we, what we know from our aeromedical retrieval data is that similarly, the further that you live from a metropolitan centre, the more likely it is that you will be taken to hospital uh, and admitted to hospital because of a preventative, uh, a preventable illness. So something that uh, you're ill with, but that with the right early intervention could have been uh, prevented. What's going on with women in the bush? Why are they uh, likely to die 19 years earlier than their city counterpart? Look, it's a very complex set of factors and we wouldn't claim to have all of the answers. Mm -hmm. But we know that there are um, lifestyle issues. So we know that um, different people have different access to healthcare, have different uh, access to exercise, have different access to diet and to medication and to management of conditions and so forth. So it's a complex picture. But we did do a little bit of a natural experiment, really, through COVID. It was forced upon us. And what we found uh, during COVID is that a lot of uh, primary health measures uh, were interrupted because communities necessarily had to shut down in order to protect themselves from the virus, or clinicians were unable to practice because, it, for instance, in dental care, it might have just been too risky in those early days of the crisis. Uh, so a lot of people missed out on uh, primary health care and missed out on some of the routine management of their conditions. And what we find now coming out of the COVID immediate crisis anyway, is that uh, the, we, we've seen an increase of 25% in what we call our priority one aeromedical retrievals. So what that means is the people that we're encountering in the bush now are sicker than they would have been prior to the uh, COVID pandemic. And I think what that tells us very clearly is that all of those things that we routinely do around primary health and primary uh, care uh, are effective at uh, preventing uh, illness in the first instance or, are prevent or, or, or stop illness getting severe uh, once, once it is detected. That's Frank Quinlan from the RFDS speaking to Amy Phillips. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. Finally, on Countrywide Today, a mining story. Diesel utes could be on the way out at Australian mine sites following a billion-dollar agreement between SEA or Sea Electric and Mevco. The deal will see more than 8,000 Toyota Hilux and Land Cruiser utes converted to electric vehicles. Michelle Stanley reports. On mine sites across Australia, whether it's coal, iron ore, lithium or gold, one thing they all have in common is diesel. But there are moves to displace Australia's diesel ute fleet with electric alternatives. The, the demand for, for infrastructure companies and mining companies is huge. Bill Gillespie is the Asia-Pacific president for Sea Electric. It's a company building electric vehicles in Australia. It's, it's ramped up in the past 12 months. It's gone from almost nothing to companies saying, listen, if you can make an electric Hilux or an electric ute of any type, we will order at scale because we need to do it straight away. Sea Electric and Mevco, the mining electric vehicle company, announced plans for a $1 billion deal. 
to convert 8,500 Toyota Utes to electric. As part of the deal, C will source the vehicles, convert them in Australia at a factory in Victoria and potentially also New South Wales. Mevco has committed to watering all 8,500 units over the next five years and will work with the mining industry across the country to on-sell the vehicles and provide operational support. Currently, C's manufacturing 150 electric trucks in Dandenong and now hopes to convert up to 4,000 vehicles per year. Bill Gillespie says the agreement signifies a major scale-up in the company's operations. We're not a start-up anymore. We are, as we, we refer to as a scale-up business now, and this is part of that scale-up in Australia. The vehicles involved in this deal will be Hilux and Land Cruiser Utes. Bill Gillespie says they'll focus on two configurations with two C-drive options. The 4x2 and then the 4x4, so obviously for mining, and they'll be specified with two uh, drive systems. We call them a C-drive, that's a branded drive, but two uh, options, an 88-kilowatt-hour battery, which is a nearly 400 kilometres of range, and then a smaller 60-kilowatt-hour battery with about 250 kilometres of use. They're pretty fast chargers. The 88-kilowatt-hour battery, if you put, the, put it on a fast charge, you're looking at about 90 minutes or under in terms of charging. Mevco CEO Matt Carr says the difference between this conversion and a typical electric vehicle you might see driving in inner city street will be torque. Most of all the architectures of electric vehicles are focused on a vehicle taking off at a rapid speed. What we were looking for was exactly the opposite. We're looking for a high torque or high carrying capacity of the vehicle so that it can maintain speed on steep uh, declines and climbs and carry heavy loads, trailers, uh, men, etc., etc. So where will they end up? Well, Matt Carr wouldn't give me specifics, but over half of this year's allocation has already been pre-sold. What's really interesting to us is that the mining companies certainly have very large fleet requirements. I think there's about 25,000 Hiluxes per year sold into mining, but mining services is about three times that in terms of the number of vehicles used to support mining operations. So you're not necessarily signing a deal with Rio Tinto or BHP or Mineral Resources, for example, but with those companies which service those mines? Well, I think it's all of the above and a whole lot of names that you didn't mention. You know, obviously we're not at liberty to, to disclose specific names, but I can assure you that pretty much every major marquee mining company brand that is well known to Australians are definitely in, in and on the list somewhere. Matt Carr says there's huge interest across Australia's resources sector in reducing carbon emissions and switching vehicles from diesel to electric will be part of that. So I think it's, it's, it's really, really important. So for starters, mining companies have set very aggressive targets around being uh, carbon neutral. This is an easy pathway to get there quickly with the light commercial vehicles. Uh, where it doesn't impact production. You know, there's a lot of good reasons here for a mining company to go green. You know, everything from the employee workplace through to their investors, uh, you know, at, uh, at stock level. Bill Gillespie says the upfront cost of a C electric vehicle could be as much as three times that of a diesel alternative. But in the long run, he says the operational costs are far lower. One of our uh, last mile logistics companies in Melbourne that, that uses two of these vehicles, 
they're saving $45 per day on the diesel that they would normally use. So yes, the vehicle costs them uh, three times as much, but they have the vehicle over five years. They do 250,000 kilometres. And if you work out, obviously, um, you know, 250 working days per year by $45 per day on diesel saving, the OPEX side more than negates the upfront capital equipment costs. Given manufacturers like Toyota are yet to announce plans to offer electric vehicle alternatives to utility vehicles like Hiluxes and Land Cruisers, Sea Electric says it has a large amount of interest from businesses keen to make the switch sooner rather than later. But in the long run, Bill Gillespie doesn't think Australia will ever entirely let go of its hold on diesel. Look, I think it's going to still be a mixture. You know, I I think there are still applications on mine sites where diesel or a hybrid approach will work and will still be acceptable using clean diesel. There's also talk about, obviously, hydrogen being a solution. So I think there's a range of different solutions. So I don't think at any point anyone thinks that suddenly overnight all of the utes on Australian mines are going to be electric. I think it's a transition. That's Bill Gillespie from Sea Electric. He's the Asia-Pacific president, ending that report by Michelle Stanley. And that's it for Countrywide this week. I'm David Clawton, and if you're listening on digital radio, you can also find this program as a podcast to listen to later on. Search for Countrywide on the ABC Listen app. Countrywide on ABC Radio. This is an ABC podcast.